Um, as Ashish said, my name is Rose. Um, I love being on staff here at Mill City. It's wonderful. I'm also a youngest sibling. Any youngest siblings in here? A handful. All right. Um, any older, oldest siblings in here? That feels right. Yes. I love older siblings. I have three older siblings. Um, they're wonderful. Any only child folks out here? Just a handful. I was talking to a mentee of mine recently, and she is an only child, and she feels like it was unfair that she didn't get to have siblings. And so she asked me what it was like to be a youngest sibling, and I said, as youngest siblings do, you know it was tough, right? <laughs> I said, you know it was tough because when I was a kid and there were four of us, the older siblings would often babysit me. And they would sort of pull together and team up against me because I was the most gullible, and they would pull pranks on me, right? And for example, one Saturday morning, my oldest brother, who's seven years older than me, told me that mom had left the entire Saturday chores list for me to do. And now I was gullible, but I wasn't that gullible, and I knew that that chores list was supposed to be split up between all of us, right? So I was like, no way, I'm calling mom. But before I could get to the phone, the phone rang. Does anyone here know what a callback number is, a ringback number? I didn't either. My seven-year-old self didn't either. Um, but in the time of the dinosaurs and the landline phones, right, you would have um, a number that you could call to make your own phone ring. And then if you had multiple landline phones, you could sort of simulate a conversation. You could talk to each other, sort of like a walkie-talkie channel. So my oldest brother picked up the phone when it fake rang, said, hi, mom. Yeah, Rose doesn't believe us. Here she is. She wants to talk to you. Handed me the phone. Meanwhile, my other brother was in the other room with the other landline phone, and in his highest, most mom-like voice possible, told me that I had to do all the chores that day. And I believed him, right? Now, in all honesty, I don't totally remember what came next. But in my version of this story, which is most likely for sure the way that it happened, I did all the chores, and then when mom came home, I happened to mention I finished all the chores, like she asked me to, right? And as I was explaining why, I innocently revealed my brother's deceit, in which case, they had to go to their room and wait until dad got home, right? Now, my brothers would probably tell you that there were a lot more emotional outbursts and tantrums involved in this situation, but I like my version of the story better, so we're gonna go with that. Either way, the youngest siblings in the crowd could agree that sometimes being the youngest sibling can be really hard and unfair, right? Of course, if you're an older sibling listening to this story, you might point out that my oldest brother was practically held hostage by the fact that I existed, right? Because instead of being able to hang out with his friends and play video games and go to the mall or whatever you did in the 90s as a teenager, he had to stay home and watch me, right? And so older siblings might conclude that being an older sibling is hard and unfair. Now, if you're a middle sibling listening to this story, you might just be caught up on the fact that my middle sibling sister was virtually ignored in the telling of this story. <laughs> we all have moments when we feel like life isn't fair and often have visceral reactions to that fact. We may know as integrated and healthy adults that life isn't fair, but we don't have to like it right? It's the worst. But what if Jesus is inviting us into more than a focus on what is fair? Let's see what God's invitation is to us from a kingdom perspective. 
We pick up today's reading in the Gospel of Matthew as Jesus is using parables to explain his radically different way of understanding the world around us. He calls this the kingdom, the kingdom of God. As we've heard through this sermon series, the first thing that Jesus preaches at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 4 is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, turn away from the old way of doing things. Why? Because God's reign is near and God's reign changes everything. The kingdom is what we have been referring to as the great reversal. The kingdom is God's, the reign, is the reign of God breaking into the world, into our everyday lives, and reversing what we think we know of our values, of our status, of our situation. The first shall be last. The lost shall be found. In these parables, our deep desire for fairness is challenged by the reversal of values the kingdom of God invites us into. We pick up our parable today in Matthew 20, 1 through 16. As we read, pay attention to what happens with each of the five different groups of workers in this story. What is their visceral reaction to this on-the-job experience? For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again at noon and at three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day? But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, the first will be last. Just to get a good visual of what's going on here compensation-wise, I made a little table for us. So we have the group that they were in, the hours of the day that they worked, the hours worked, their minimum wage that they should have earned, the kingdom wage, and then the kingdom hourly wage. Now I'm taking some liberties with this, but let's assume early in the morning means 6 a.m. I know for some of you, 9 or even noon is early in the morning, but we'll go with 6. It also sort of works with the increments of 3 we see in the rest of the parable. Let's also assume that a denarius is a day's minimum wage. So in Minnesota, minimum wage is 10.33 an hour. So for 12 hours, that would be $123.96. That would mean that the first group is earning 10.33 per hour, and the last group is earning $123.96 per hour. As you see the total minimum wage group, sorry, as you can see, the total minimum wage earned by group one is the hourly wage of group five. 
and the total minimum wage earned by group five is the hourly wage of group one. This parable is like world's worst group project. How many of you hated group projects? If your hand isn't raised, you might be one of those people that made us hate group projects. <laughs> this is what this parable would look like as a group project. So you've got the students, the course grade that they were earning before the project, the hours that they worked on the project, the project grade that they should have earned, and then the actual kingdom grade, right? The project grade. Now this is assuming, maybe falsely, that the B and C and D students don't also slack off like the F student because they know that A plus student is gonna do all the work anyway, right? But in the best case scenario, this is still so frustrating. My friend recently told me a story about her daughter who is a high achieving type in fifth grade. And the teacher announced that they would be doing a group project. And when she split them off to go and find their groups, that little spitfire marched, marched right up to her teacher and said, since I'm gonna be doing all this work alone, I will be doing this project alone. <laughs> and the teacher let her. Can you believe that? But honestly, if most of us knew that would work, we would have tried that a long time ago. After all, it's only fair. But here in the upside down kingdom of God, nothing is fair. And I know that that's scary for us, but what if we choose to see it as actually a good thing? In the kingdom, we are invited to trade self-righteousness and earning and comparison for God's radical generosity. In this passage, the first group worked longer than everyone else. And because of this, it says in verse 10, they expected to receive more than everyone else. This is, at its core, self-righteousness. The definition of self-righteousness is having or being characterized by a certainty, especially an unfounded one, that one is totally correct or morally superior. The workers in this parable are totally unfounded in their certainty or expectation that they deserve more than what they had been promised. As Christians, we are so good at this self-righteousness thing, right? I know I am. It's actually one of my strengths. I've got empathy, strategic, woo, relator, and self-righteousness. Really though, I think we have a real issue with this as Christians because self-righteousness can often get a little confused with righteousness. Righteousness is the quality of being morally right or justifiable. Brené Brown puts it this way, righteousness is a real response to a threat to equity or justice. Self-righteousness is proving to ourselves or others that we care about or are right about that inequity or injustice. Self-righteousness is literally the self getting in the way of the righteousness. In this passage, we see their ideas about what they're owed getting in the way of truly seeing the payment as a gift to themselves and others. The workers in group one have been promised one denarius for a day's work, and that's what they received. But they believe they are right to say that they have earned more because they have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. And we can empathize with that, right? That's not fair. But this is where the group project metaphor breaks down. While that A-plus student earned that A-plus grade, None of us earn God's gift of love and grace. Neither the first group or the last group in this parable deserve the denarius. It's all grace. The greatest possible reward, God's grace and love, is promised to us all, regardless of what we do. It's all grace. Janine Brown, in her commentary, calls this the deep and potentially disturbing generosity of God. I love that because it is a little disturbing, right? This is uncomfortable. And I think it's disturbing for a couple of reasons. 
First, this is uncomfortable because against the kingdom theology that we say we hold, in spite of the fact that when we're our best selves, we love the idea of generosity and unmerited favor, we often fall into a pattern of thinking that says that we have to earn God's grace and love, and the more we do for God, the more grace and love we receive. Here at Mill City, we have a lot of high achievers, people who work really hard for the kingdom, so we may want to make a habit of asking ourselves, Am I doing this because deep down, I believe that God loves me more on the days that I work hard than on the days that I don't? Am I doing this because deep down, I believe that God loves me more on the days I work harder than on the days I don't? Y'all, some of us need to sit with that. Amen. Another reason this is uncomfortable is because we've learned to judge how well we're doing by looking around at everyone else. The first group earned what they were promised to earn, so their quarrel wasn't actually with their earnings, but with their earnings in comparison to the rest of the workers. This is not a frustration with not getting what they deserve, but rather a frustration with other people getting what they do not perceive them to deserve. If we look again at this passage, we see that each group meets the landowner at a different time, but when they do, he calls them and they get to work. They each have a task in front of them that is only theirs to do in the time allotted to them. And we each have our own unique task to do in the kingdom time allotted to us. In our lives in the upside-down kingdom, the work that we do is because of God's love, not to earn God's love. And where and when we are called is our starting point. Our only task is to follow where God leads and do the work for as long as we're here. We need to remember and remind each other often that the reward is not the point or the purpose of the work. The first group gets to be in relationship with the landowner all day long. They get the joy of joining in God's loving mission for a longer period of time. In the parable, the work is the point. It's harvest time. The grapes are harvested. People are provided for. Joining in what God's doing in the world is an end, not a means to an end. If we're still not sure if the reward is our motivation or if the work is our motivation, a helpful question to ask ourselves might be this. If I was in the first group of vineyard workers and I knew how the day would play out, would I wait around until that last group work only an hour to get paid, or would I begin the work when I was called? The beautiful thing is, once we take up the work for the work's sake, for the furthering of God's love and grace in the world, once we move past the earning and the self-righteousness and the comparison, then we not only get to partake in God's radical generosity, but we get to be the givers of it. As image bearers of a God who is known for his radical and disturbing generosity, we, the people of the kingdom, should be and get to be known for radical generosity as well. In November of 2018, I decided I was going to move to Minneapolis the following fall to attend Bethel Seminary. I'd been living in West Michigan at the time. My sister and her husband and their newborn baby, this is my middle forgotten sibling from earlier, <laughs> they were already living here downtown. And a couple months after I told them I was going to be moving here, they called me up and they said, so we're going to buy a house. And we met with our realtor and we told him that one of our requirements is that there's a basement apartment for you. What? Now the market wasn't as bad as it is now, but it wasn't great even back then. And it just seemed impossible that someone would base a decision as big as a house purchase on the fact that a jobless seminary student would probably need somewhere to live. So I sort of shrugged it off. I was like, don't make the decision around me. It's your house. Get the house that you want. A couple months later, I got another phone call. We found our house. And I'm like, congratulations. That's amazing. And they were like, no, we found our house. 
there's an apartment for you. It doesn't look great right now, but we'll fix it up. It'll be wonderful. At this point, I was getting ready to leave my whole life behind, a teaching career that I loved, a community that I loved, to move to a new city where I knew exactly one couple, that one, and I didn't have a job, and I didn't have a church, and I didn't even have health insurance, so having a home sounded pretty magical. So I just asked sheepishly, what if we don't like living together? Right? Like, that's a concern. You're basing this big decision on this. And they were like, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out if that happens. When I arrived in Minneapolis in the fall, not only did I have a place to live, but they had renovated the entire space. There were a million projects they needed to get done upstairs in those first few months, but instead of fixing up their own space first, they fixed up the space they weren't even living in for someone who wasn't even sure if she could afford to pay rent. I cannot even begin to tell you what their act of radical generosity meant to me at a time when everything else in my life felt so uncertain. It changed everything. And now, going on almost three years of living together, it still does. I know that there are many families at Mel City who open up their homes in similar ways all the time. People who open their homes to people who need a safe resting place or people going through a difficult time. This community is already living out radical generosity in countless ways. Did you know that there are people in our congregation who volunteer their time to work in the kitchen of a senior living facility because they found out that the facility is short-staffed? That's a job. They should be getting paid. The facility has money set aside for this. But they don't want to get paid, and they don't feel like they need to get paid because the reward is not the point. The work is the point. Radical generosity. This community is also moving forward with the MB campaign, building housing units in our backyard on the Mill City Commons property and even in some of your own backyards to help house those who are houseless, welcoming total strangers to be our very close neighbors because their well-being and flourishing matters. And I don't know about you, but when I've told some people about this, they're a little uncomfortable. <laughs> they're concerned. They don't understand. This is abnormal. This is radical generosity. I've also witnessed people in this community totally rearrange their schedules for complete strangers in need, going out of their way to sit with people, to listen to them, to help them move, to bring someone they've never met to the airport, right? I've witnessed people extend grace and patience towards those who do not deserve it, who are seemingly ungrateful, and I have watched them do it again and again and again. What would it look like if radical generosity truly shaped our entire lives? What if we lived like living out God's radical generosity of time, of resources, of spirit was the whole point? People wouldn't understand it. It wouldn't make sense. It'd be a bit disturbing in this culture that values fairness and getting more and achieving more. This is countercultural. This is the countercultural reality of the great reversal, the upside-down kingdom. The call to action here is not to give more money to Mill City Church. It's to think about this in your own life, in your own work, and in your own calling. How can we shape our lives around radical generosity? And remember, we all have a different starting point and different tasks to which we're called. For some people, this may look like sharing our resources. What if we lived our lives on the lookout for the needs of others and then made a practice of meeting them whenever possible? And not just in the big things, but in the small things too. What if we brought ice cream cones to a local park on a hot day and just handed them out to whoever we saw because it's hot? And we need ice cream, right? What if we saw someone post online that they're in search of something, like a baby monitor or a kid's bike or something, and we just went out of our way to get it for them? Maybe even buying one, just don't tell them, you know, I got you, and hand it to them. Maybe this means being generous with our time. I know we're busy. We're wrapping up what many have started to call may 
the month with all of the busyness of December, minus the gifts and the fun, right? But now we move, as we move into the summer months, which have a habit of also getting unexpectedly busy, what would it look like to commit to being more present with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our families? Could we set aside a part of our week to help others however we're able? Could we use whatever skills we have to serve or even teach others? If you know how to garden, could you spend time helping someone start their first garden? If you know that one of your coworkers struggles with a certain task or a software, could you offer to give them a tutorial? Or maybe even just give your attention more fully next time they ask you a question. And maybe it means being generous of spirit. This is possibly the toughest of them all. What would it look like to give generous grace to people who frustrate us? Or generous love to people who are hard to love? What would it mean to people around you if you gave them all radically generous patience? Right after I wrote that last line, I got in my car, where I quickly found myself stuck in traffic. As we crawled along in a snail's pace, I watched over and over as folks drove past me on the shoulder and then shoved themselves back into traffic three cars ahead of me. Slowing down and waving them in front of me required much more than the simple patience required of a regular zipper merge. Right? They were cutting in, they were cheating. In short, they did not deserve my patience. No, this was not just patience. Slowing down and waving them in with a smile on my face required radically generous kingdom patience. Thank God for the Holy Spirit who invites us into the kingdom, where we get to trade self-righteousness and earning in comparison for God's radical generosity. As we wrap up, I want to invite the band to come up. When we let go of self-righteousness, earning, and comparison, it is so much easier to see that they are not what God wants for us. Like we always say at Mill City, generosity is what God wants for us, not from us. God's heart is not for us to be perpetually stressed about how unfair life can be or about how we measure up to others, but rather, God wants us to live in the joy of receiving his generosity in our lives and then living lives of generosity wherever God has us. What would it look like for us to be radically generous with our patience, with our love, with our forgiveness? How would it transform our lives if we let go of fairness and earning and received God's radical generosity and love? And how could we turn around and transform others and our neighbors by, giving, by gifting that radical kingdom generosity to those around us? We're gonna throw some questions up on the screen and before we end in worship, I would like each one of us to just take a couple minutes and really reflect on the practical ways that the Holy Spirit is leading you to both receive and reflect the radical generosity of God. <laughs>